Just remaining, remaining with that focus, let's turn to the book of Mark, chapter 7. Been doing an on-again, off-again series through the book of Mark, and uh, we're back on again. So uh, for the next, for the foreseeable future, we'll just be going one story at a time, studying through this gospel together. Starting in verse 31 of chapter 7. Then he, being Jesus, returned from the region of of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear, and the mute speak. So, if you were to read through the Gospels, there are a lot of stories like this where Jesus is going about his life. They bring him someone who needs to be healed or freed in some way. And he does it. He either tells them, tell everybody or tell no one. And then he continues on. And sometimes it's easy to read these stories, like when, especially when you're one after the other, and it's like, oh, there, he healed somebody again. Awesome. But with each healing and each story, there are all these nuanced things that the Bible just crafts this story very perfectly. And, and that's why I like to go slowly through something, because there's some details in here that's easy to miss if you're just kind of trying to go as fast as you can. But I want to start, I want to look at verse 37 for a second. After this happened, it says in verse 37 that they were astonished beyond measure. They were astonished beyond measure. And I, I asked myself as I was preparing, I said, when was the last time I was astonished beyond measure? Like that, that Jesus, like, that I was like stopped in my tracks, that I was stunned with just the beauty and, the, and just the incredibleness of Jesus, you know. I don't know when the last time was for you. Maybe it was during that last song. I guess that would be pretty awesome. Um, but being, being astonished beyond measure is something that, that it's easy to, um, to maybe like feel like you're so familiar with Jesus and what he does and who, who he is and what he's done for us and all that stuff that that maybe at times it kind of loses its luster a little bit. And I think that's a part of why he has us gather consistently together is that we would be utterly astonished, you know, astonished beyond measure. Uh, there was this one time, and it was in May of 2000 for me. Now, that wasn't the last time, but it was one of the most significant for me. 
It was May of, of, of 2000, and there was a gathering in Memphis, outside of Memphis, Tennessee, called One Day. And uh, some of you were, were maybe there. Uh, it was a gathering of college students from all over, all over the world, really. Um, but there's about 40,000 of us gathering in a field. And it, you know, there's this, yeah, there we go. That's like an aerial shot. It's not a great shot. Our, our projector's not great either, but trust me, I'm in there. And some of you, raise your hand if you were, if you were there. Yeah, yeah. I see y'all. You were there too. 40,000 students gathered for a sun-up to sundown uh, day devoted to the Lord. And it was a, a, an intermingling of singing and praying and teaching. And to some of you, that sounds like the war, just a nightmare. You know, It was like a long church service, but... It, but it wasn't. It, it wasn't like that. It was. It was modeled after these like solemn, sacred assemblies in the Old Testament. And so they said, "What if? What if we just found a big piece of land and said, if you want to come, it was like come on a Tuesday. You can camp out Tuesday night. At sunup on Wednesday, you can come to this field, and then we're going to be there all day long, singing and praying and studying the Word and just seeing what God wants to do." until the sun goes down and then you can go back to your campsite and tent and then you can leave. And, um, about middle of the day, like we had been, we'd been like preparing for this and praying for this. And it was a, it was one of those things that everyone just kind of took really seriously. Like when you got to the field, uh, like everyone took their shoes off before you stepped onto it. Like it was a, it was like a sacred place, you know, about middle of the day, John Piper gets up to preach and some of you love John Piper, some of you don't love John Piper. I, that's fine. Um, but in this moment, God chose him to bring a very influential and prophetic word to this group. And you, if you were there, you you probably remember it, and maybe you've seen it or read it. It was the it was the "Don't Waste Your Life" sermon. It was forty thousand college age students that were there, and he is pleading with us to not waste our lives by, by believing that the, the goal of our lives is to have a safe, comfortable American life. So if you believe that and you commit to that, you will waste your life, the one life that you have to live here. And he wasn't necessarily railing against those things as much as that being what you're devoted to and, and being duped into thinking that's what it's all about. And it was the first time I had ever really heard someone uh, put it that way. And so he's pleading with us. At, at one point he says, he says, there are billions of dollars that are spent to sell you this message every year. And I have 40 minutes to plead with you to not buy into this lie. And it, it floored me. And I think a lot of us were there. And um, so he had our attention because he had just turned everything you thought that you were pursuing upside down and he was reordering it and saying the, the pursuit of your life is, is, to be, is to not try and become the master of a whole bunch of things. It's really to have a, a few sacred ideas that you don't master, but they master you. And, and, and that is the trajectory of your life. And wherever it takes you, uh, Jesus being famous, being made famous through your life, in your life, like from your perspective and through your life, like that is what is happening. 
and he prayed that the the ripples of that day would go into the campuses and the nations and eternity. And uh, honestly, I, I think a part of why I'm here and that we are here together, I think we are one of those ripples that went out from that day. Like that was a, that was a big day. But that wasn't the bigness. The, like that was, he got our attention at that point, And then he said, I'm going to tell you one of the things that you need to be mastered by. And it was, he took Galatians 6.14 where Paul says, uh, may, I, may I never boast in anything except for the cross of Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That through the, through the in other words, through the cross, uh, the lure of the world and buying into all those things has been put to death. That Jesus put those things to death. And, and he was like, so how can, you, how can you boast only in the cross when there's all these other great things that God tells us to boast in? Like, what, a, what about the, the things he's doing? What about the, the, the times when he speaks truth to us? What about the, the sources of joy in our lives? What about, like, boasting? It's not, not an arrogant boasting. It's, it's an exaltation. It's, a, uh, it's like a, a lifting of, like, showing, like, look how amazing this is, you know? And, like, what's wrong with saying that about your... Uh, you know, the friendships that he has given you, the, what's wrong with that about your spouse or your, your kids or um, the fact that you love what you do for a living or that you have a job at all. And there's like all these really great things that are from God. Why, if we're only boasting in the cross, what do we do with those things? And so he, he basically said this, and this, is, this was the stunning moment for me. Um, said all of those things that we want to exalt... And show off and say, look what God has done. The really good things, like all our sources of joy. And when God takes something that's really difficult and brings good out of it, you know. When someone is, is uh, in the snare of addiction and God frees them from that. Like that's a bad thing that he makes good. When someone has a, has a, a bad diagnosis from the doctor and yet they, are, uh, they say, well, I'm just going to be a blessing to every, uh, every nurse, every doctor. Um, if hospice comes in, I'm going to bless them. Like all the way to the end, uh, I'm going to talk about the Lord. Like that's, a, that's an exaltation. He's basically saying all of those things come under this bigger umbrella of the cross because... None of those things are like you are entitled to or deserve. And that Jesus, when he went to the cross and laid his life down, he purchased every single one of those for you and has given it to you. And so anything that you find joy in is a gift that came through the cross. He bought it with his blood and hands it to you. And so all of those things are under this greater umbrella. So when you, when you exalt those things and you say, look what God has done, above that is this greater look what he has done. Because he's done this greater thing, he does all these great things. And I'd never thought about anything in my life through that lens before. Of Jesus looking at me and saying, you don't deserve anything, but I'm going to give you everything. And I'm going to die to do it. 
And he preached this sermon. And there's 40,000 of us on this hillside. And he prays and he walks off. And my, this might not have been how it actually happened, but in my memory, this is what happened. No one said a word. And it, it probably felt like an hour. It was maybe a couple minutes. But you got 40,000 college students. And there was like this holy hush just came over the, over the, the crowd. And you could, all you could really hear was people crying or praying or... You look around and people, some people are like on their face, you know, like on the, in the dirt and people are on their knees and people are standing up and it's, it was like this, just this really holy still moment. And then the, the band kind of like, like slowly kind of came into this song and they did when I survey the wondrous cross, which I hadn't heard since I was a kid and it suddenly it meant it meant so much. And it just erupted into this holy roar of worship and adoration. That's what I'm talking about. Of being utterly astonished at Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Like that. Like we, we need that. We don't have to have this big dramatic moment all the time. But there have to be these times when we're just like taken back. Or taken aback. Depending on how you say it with the amazingness of Jesus. And I think that this story can do that. I think it can do that. I'm not, we're not going to try to manufacture some sort of moment, but if we are humble and teachable and open, this could be one of those really stunning stories for us. So, let's look at it again. Verse 32. They brought him a man who was deaf and had speech impediment. And, he, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Okay, so Jesus is in this region called the Decapolis, where the, it's like it's ten cities in this kind of area. And in chapter five, he had uh, he had freed a man from uh, demonic oppression and told the guy, "Hey, go tell everybody." And he must have done it because as Jesus passes through the air, the region, they know who he is, and they're bringing people to him uh, who need him. thing is they kind of saw him maybe as a too much of a healer which was not his that wasn't his primary goal i mean he came he healed but he healed as a way of bringing the kingdom near and he didn't want to be known as a miracle worker that's probably part of why he was like hey don't spread this around too much because maybe people were trying to put a label on him that he didn't really want definitely not yet look at verse 33 Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. There's a couple of things that I think we need to consider from this man's perspective. So he, he is unable to hear and uh, unable to speak. Let's think about that for a second. Um, especially in the first century, he probably had a very limited awareness of what was happening. You know, maybe they had developed you know sign language and things at that point. I I, I don't know. Maybe Sydney knows. I don't know. But probably 
It was a it was a, a fairly primitive form of communication. And so here's this man who um, has not heard about Jesus, and like literally, he's not heard about him, and he's unable to speak and ask questions. So he's limited to what he's able to see. So Jesus, it says, he, he takes him aside from the crowd privately. Now, how how cool is this of him? It's it's like he he's so sensitive in the moment to this guy. Like, what if they like just like were like leading him along? And he doesn't know where they're going, and they bring him in front of this stranger, and they're asking Jesus, but he has no idea what's going on. Like to be like this the center of attention. Um, so Jesus is like, you know, that's probably not good for him. I don't know if, for a fact that that's why he took him off privately, but it sounds it sounds like Jesus. For some reason, though, he takes him off privately just to have this like one-on-one encounter with him. And it says that uh, in verse 33, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue, uh, which which seems really weird, <laughs> you know? Like the imagery of that, of Jesus, like, like that is strange. Like if you had like, peered around the corner and be like, I wonder what he's doing. And he's like, oh, he's got his fingers in his ears. <laughs> like, that's a little strange. But not when you think about it from the man's perspective. And here's, like, here is part of what stunned me about Jesus this week. Is here's this, here's this man who has no, like, he d- is not sure what's going on. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus looks him in the eye and basically like creates this like nonverbal communication and he's like he touches his ears almost like i'm going to do something to your ears and then i'm going to do something to your tongue like does he how beautiful is that that he's like i I know what you need you need to be healed he could have just healed him could have just told him could have just whatever he's like no that's like, you need to see me, you need to look at me, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to, I'm going to heal your ears. I'm going to do something to your ears and something to your tongue. I think that's beautiful. That he would cater to him. I know cater sounds bad, I don't know a better word. That he would meet him where he is. He knows what he needs. He needs to, to see something differently than the other people. So he shows him. And then it says that he looks up to heaven. And what does that what, what does that tell you? If, if you're unable to hear, and and this this man has taken you aside, he's touched your ears and he's touched your tongue, and then he looks to heaven. That tells you that what whatever's about to happen is not necessarily coming from him; it's coming from God. What an amazing moments with Jesus and this man, you know, he's like, I, I I know how to communicate with you. It's gonna be very simple. I'm going to do something to your ears and something to your tongue. And it's going to come from heaven. You got to love him. I mean, come on. And then says something very interesting to me. It says that before he prayed, it says that he sighed, He looked up to heaven and he sighed. And then he said Ephatha, and he healed him and everything. But I got hung up on that, you know, because I, I see the word sigh, and I 
don't think a lot of positive things, you know. Like when people sigh, they're kind of like, ugh. It's either like, oh, I don't really want to do this, or I don't have time for this, or here we go again. You know, it's like one of those like exasperated parent kind of things. Or, you know, there's, I guess there's some other ways, but none of them really were consistent with Jesus, and definitely not consistent with this moment. I was like, that's really weird to me. So, I uh, did what I was taught to do in seminary. I looked in other translations. In other places it says he sighed deeply, which wasn't helpful. And I started to look at the word, like the Greek word, and that word is used somewhere else by Paul, where he talks about in Romans 8 how we and creation, that we're, we're, we're longing for our complete and total redemption, and we are groaning for it groaning. That's the same word used here for sigh. So all these Bible translators and to get with the program, he didn't sigh, he groaned. He looks this guy in the face and I'm imagining that he looking him in the eye and trying to communicate with him that before he prayed, it just got to him, you know? Like the, the brokenness that we carry, it just got to him and he groaned. Then he prayed. I think it's important that we know that we have a Savior who groans for us. Um, tells us a lot about him. That face to face with our own brokenness that you and I each carry... That Jesus groans over it. That he groans over the brokenness that is around us. Um, I was talking with a counselor in town recently. There's a, uh, when someone's in counseling, your counselor can't talk about you as a client with anyone unless you sign a disclosure form. And sometimes when churches are working closely with someone that's in counseling, uh, we'll ask the, the client, will you sign this disclosure so we can communicate with your counselor and make sure we're on the same page? It doesn't happen all that often, but it does happen. was meeting with, with a counselor recently about a, a, a situation that uh, was, was really difficult and is really difficult. And um, it, was just, it, was a, a, it was a special needs situation. And we began to talk, and as we started off, like, what are we going to do about this? And it was, like, kind of mechanical and kind of, like, you know, troubleshooting kind of thing. And then we turned a corner, and we just started talking about the, the, what was really going on and the root of things, and just the brokenness that this client was carrying. And uh, we both just, just got really emotional about it. And when I read this story and, and I saw that Jesus groaned, I was like, yeah, I remember groaning that day in that office. And I groaned worse when I got to the truck later. Because um, I'm watching this counselor who has been in the thick of it just broke and said, I, I can't imagine what it's like to be in that situation. And he went there and he took me with him. And then there I was crying in his office and crying more in my truck and when I read this, Jesus was just kind of like, yeah, it's, it's like that. 
Like that's how I, that's how I feel about the brokenness that you all wrestle with. And I thought that was interesting on a lot of levels, but is that how you think about him? Like in regard to your own shortcomings, you know, like your own struggles with sin, uh, things that you have been freed from, but yet returned to, you know, like just your own like times when you, you come up short of what, of what you want for yourself and what you think God wants for you. Um, I don't know that I think of him all the time as one who's groaning over what I just did or, you know, whatever. There's a very common thing among, among us where we, we tend to project onto God however our, like, childhood authority figures dealt with our shortcomings, you know. Like, your, your father, your mother, your grandfather, you know, those kinds of things. And that tends to be like what our default. So whenever, whenever we have some sort of shortcoming, we kind of go back into that mode when we were kids and like, how did those people react? So if you're, if you're, if that person, I'm, I'm going to use dad because that's like the, the general one that the father wound is what you talk about the most. But if you have some sort of shortcoming and your dad was angry with you, then you tend to think that whenever that happens for you, even as an adult, that God is angry with you. If your dad was abusive to you, then you think that God wants to hurt you. If your dad was, uh, was just distant, then you feel like God is distant. If your dad was immersed in, was too immersed in work or a hobby to like give you, to like discipline you or work with you on thing or anything like that, then you think that God is too busy taking care of other people to, to do that for you. If you feel like, like your dad was, um, more favorable to one of your siblings than to you, then you tend to feel like, well, God's probably really not worried about me because he's tending to them. If your dad was absent, then you tend to feel like God is absent. See the pattern? And so, I don't know if you're, if the people in your life growing up, if they groaned over your shortcomings, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Here's what I know for a fact. Your Savior groans. He, he doesn't get mad at you. He doesn't get fed up with you. He doesn't dismiss you. He's not uh, too busy doing other things to fool with it. He's, he's not indifferent. He groans for you and with you because He loves you. And so this is really isn't about your parents. This is about... This is about Jesus. And how, do, how does he react to me when I have messed up? You need, you need to know that this portrays that and displays that for us on purpose so that we would know, how am I supposed to process in this moment? Oh, yeah, um, Jesus like, came to this man and met him where he was and communicated with him in a way that he could understand. He created, let's say, sign language, nonverbal, whatever you want to call it. He said, I'm going to do something to your ears. I'm going to touch your tongue. And it's going to come from heaven. And I just can't take it anymore how terrible this is that you have to carry it. And I'm so glad that the Father sent me to come and set all this right. And to restore it to the way it's supposed to be. 
And in a minute you're going to be healed and that's going to be great. But one day you're going to be free from the real problem and that's going to be amazing and you're going to live forever and none of this will be the case. Ephatha. Be opened. And his ears began to work and whatever was binding his tongue was let go of it. He began to speak. And what was the reaction of the crowd? They were utterly astonished, amazed beyond belief. Jesus is like, hey, let's not, let's not get to, and they're like, nope, sorry, dude. You can tell us whatever, but we can't, we will not shut up about this. You're, you're too good. That's who he is to us, to you. That is why we boast in his cross. Because none of that is possible without him dying and purchasing for us all, all of these good and perfect gifts that come from the Father. And so, what does that have to do with you today? I, I don't know. I know a good like preacher like connection. Can I make a, just a cheesy preacher connection? There's probably something going on in your life that you need him to take you aside and look you in the eye and figure out how to communicate to you because sometimes stuff just isn't getting through. You ever feel kind of dense, you know? And he's like, I know how to get through to you if you'll just let me. He got through to this man. He can get through to you. There's something in your life that you, you need him to like physically touch like that. You, you need him to take you aside and tend to you like that. And because now like Jesus has ascended to the Father and sent the Spirit to all of us, then he, he's, in this story, he's one place at one time. Now he's like in us and through us. And so that tending and loving can happen to every person in this room at any moment, it doesn't have to be here. It could be at, at any time. Like that is the the accessibility of God now because of what He has done. Which is another thing that we exalt and submit to that because of the cross, this kind of stuff can happen at any point, in any place. That when you're humble and you say, "Jesus, just uh, this is what's going on. I need I need your touch." I need you to be you to me in this. Then he groans, says, yeah, you do. I'm so, so glad, so glad that we're here. Let's do this. And maybe it's quick. Maybe it's a slow process. And maybe, maybe it involves a number of different steps, but it begins with having an accurate understanding of how, how is he going to react to me when I bring this to him? Look at the story and let the story speak for itself. So wherever this meets you, that's between you and him. So I just get to come in and do this thing, and now it's now it's up to you. And and I know that like sometimes it's hard to know what to do, and so that's why we we have kind of a multifaceted response time here at Living Hope because some of you need to just sit and pray, or come kneel and pray, or come to the front row and ask someone to pray with you. 
Uh, that's how you need to respond. Some of you are just like, I just want to sing. Just stop talking. <laughs> yeah. Some of you taking communion is, is going to be that tangible like reminder. And you'll step up to the table and you'll take the bread and you'll dip it in the juice. And, and receiving that grace that Jesus has for you is this tangible reminder of what he has done. You can do any of those things, but in a minute I'm going to pray and the band's going to, we're going to get into that thing and the people will be moving around. I just want you to kind of know why everyone's moving. But everyone's different. And so whatever you need in terms of response, we have this window between when I'm done and when we say the priestly blessing and, and then your life resumes again. So this little span of time, just steward it well, you know, take advantage of this, the uniqueness of this. Um, so I'm going to pray for us as the musicians come back and then we'll kind of enter into that time where you and Jesus can talk. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I'm, I'm so thankful for the details of this story that, uh, that I didn't catch the first time or the second time. But then little by little, you just began to highlight things about yourself, which is pretty awesome. I love the fact that this this man uh, had a very special encounter with you and that you just met him where he was. And you do the same for us. And so I pray that, that we are, yes, astonished beyond measure at you and your goodness. But that we would recognize that that was not just for him that day. It's for us in this day. That you desire to do this and even greater things in our lives. I thank you that I have a Savior who groans on my behalf. Even when I'm too self-absorbed to realize it or see it in others or to be broken in the right ways for myself and for what's going on around me. Thankful that you're consistent and and pray in these moments that we are trying to steward well, that you would just have your way and that we would respond in spirit and in truth. We love you and pray this in your good and perfect name. Amen. All right, let's, let's stand. If you want to, you don't have to stand. Uh, like I said, you can come and pray. Um, you can receive communion. You can sing a mixture of those things, whatever fits you the best. Our communion tables are open. You come whenever you're ready. Let's give the Lord these, these minutes together.